Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So where did you grow up, Hugh? Was it in Kentish Town? I or never grew up. You never grew up. I like that. Okay, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in um, just north of Kentish Town in North London, NW5. The Pineapple down there is one of my favourite pubs in London. You know that well, it's pub? Become, no, because it wasn't there when I was down there. It was, uh, it was a, a, a risky part of town in the days when I uh, grew up. Now it's become very trendy. Yeah, I imagine London as a whole was pretty rough and ready back then, right? Almost everywhere, uh, especially areas like Soho and obviously East London. Yeah, well, I didn't get to many uh, areas when I was at school days. You know, I used to go into Soho for music. Um, uh, and uh, and my school was right up the road from where I uh, lived with my parents. So uh, I didn't actually have much of an, ad- uh, an adventure getting to school and coming back it was all in the same area right so, and friends all based in the same street and neighbourhood as well uh, I knew a couple of people um, close by um, so everything was very close by really um, so I'd, places like Islington I'd heard of yeah yeah <laughs> that far away land yeah, and, and, but then Town. I used to go to Kentish Town at the forum it used to be a cinema of course and I used to go to Saturday morning pictures there with my sister. My sister used to take them Saturday morning pictures. We used to see, you know, a whole lot of Cassidy films, stuff like that. When I was about 12, I guess. Yeah. Have you always been interested in cinema then? Has that always been a, a big love yeah. of yours? Yeah. Yeah, that's when it started. My sister taking me 
um, taking me down to that. I guess that's when it started. Yeah, it's funny. It sort of hasn't really gone away. Well, we'll talk about your podcast in a moment, but I'd like to get a bit of musical context first of all. What were the early bands and influences on you as a kid, and when did music take hold of you? And well, uh, when I was growing up, it was sort of a golden age of music, um, rock music, popular music, because um, we had the um, we had um, uh, homegrown Beatles, Stones, all the British uh, explosion of of, um, of pop bands, you know, the Kinks. The yeah, Blues, Small Faces. Uh, all this is going on. Um, then you augment that with the American singers, uh, Eddie Cochran, Bobby Darin, uh, Everly Brothers, uh, all this coming over as well. And then you augment that with um, Motown starting up. Uh, so every day was a bonanza. You switch on the radio and there'd be half a dozen classics uh, new classics that you hadn't heard the day before and it literally was every day a bonanza of um, so and that, that's never really happened since or before that time uh, it was such a wild explosion of not just sounds but i guess youth culture as well right yeah absolutely it was incredible so um, so i i got up i grew up in probably the best the best time um, to grow up for um, for a modern music i think what was the first instrument you picked up well, my dad and mastered? Had, my dad had guitars lying around. Um, and so um, my, me and my two brothers gravitated towards that. Um, and, so you had two brothers, one sister? Yes. Yeah? Uh, so a nice big family. Had, luckily. And, um, and I was the youngest. And uh, so the guitar was, was, was always around. Um, um, be it for good or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> did you start out playing bass in a band with Richard I Thompson? Did, I did indeed. I, How did that come about? Uh, well, he was forming a band, and he was a mate of mine, and we were discovering music together. Um, you know, oh, have you heard this, Richard? No, have you heard that? And we used to have sessions where we bought records and turning each other onto stuff we we heard or found. Uh, Bought, uh, managed to get a hold of, and um, he was forming a band, and he needed a bass player. So I said, "Well, what, why don't you teach? Why don't I play bass?" He said, "Well, I can, I can give you some lessons in that." So, so he said, first you've got to get a bass." So there was a kid at school, another kid at school who had a, they had a band, and he was selling his bass, which was homemade, and the um, the neck was square. <laughs> it was a square piece of wood. And so I like a Bo Diddley type. Yeah. Uh, no, but I mean the neck. Oh, the actual head. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your fingers. Uh, that was a square piece of. That was a piece of wood. So it's almost like an old hillbilly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, so I started playing on that, and Richard was teaching me, and it played okay. Uh, and then, of course, when I saved up money and I got me and myself a violin bass, um, it was like a world of difference, you know. And suddenly, it was a lot easier to play. So there's, there's an element of um, sense to starting playing something that's very difficult to play. Of course, a yeah. Terrible instrument, because then uh, if you get playing that, then when you get a good instrument, you're, you're playing in grooves. Yeah, and it's like a breeze to play in comparison, right? Yeah, that's right, that, and that's exactly what happened. So I started playing bass with, in Richard's band. Yeah. Was that a long-lived project, or no, no, no? Um, we. Uh, we uh, we we hit, we were lucky 
leaves Wise because um, his elder sister, by a few years, was uh, the social secretary at uh, Hornsey College of Art, which in those days had a, a party reputation, and she was Miss Miss Party. Right. And uh, she, <laughs> she organised all these parties, and of course we'd get booked to play at them. So we did quite a few gigs. Um, and my his dad and my dad were were were, um, were put into service as the uh, road as the uh, road crew, and, and uh, well, they wouldn't pick anything up, but they uh, we'd load the stuff in and out of the cars. But they drive the stuff to the gigs, and we'd unload it and play, and then load it back in, and they drive us home. And uh, and that lasted for probably about eighteen months. Uh, Did you get a taste for the stage? Did you enjoy yeah, performing yeah, live? It. Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And then uh, and then I lost track of Richard because he he didn't stay on to do A levels. He uh, he left um, or he started A levels and then left very soon afterwards. But and I lost I lost track track of him. He sort of disappeared for a while. So were you quite an academic kid? Because I was reading you went on to do biochemistry at Bristol, right, as a bachelor's. Yeah, yeah I was quite an academic. I mean, I, not by choice, I just enjoyed, I was interested in what I was learning about. I loved biology and I loved, see, I'm a bit of a, I'm quite good with a pencil uh, or a paintbrush. And um, so I loved, uh, in biology studies, there was a lot of drawing. And I loved draw. I, I always loved drawing, so uh, and art, the art side of it. So that set me in good stead for enjoying studying biology in general, zoology and botany. So there's a lot of drawing involved. Um, so that, that, so I enjoyed that. And the chemistry I found interesting. So I, I was studying sciences, although maybe I could have studied artistic subjects, but I, was enjoy, I enjoyed the, it was interesting. Because most people I found are either a, uh an artistic type, yeah. or they do lean more towards science, maths, exactly. things like that. You had a bit of both, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was quite happy doing either, really. Yeah. And then you wound up in Sweden. That's correct, doing a postgraduate course in biochemistry. Yeah. And how was that? Uh, well, it, it was an, an alien experience? A lot of young nurses working in my department, which was great. Oh, there you go. This was crawling. That's what took you there. <laughs> yeah. So it's like being in heaven, really. Oh, it was great. And they'd say, anything we can do for you today, Hugh. <laughs> um, Here's my list. They'd help me, you know, because um, I, my, they were employed by my uh, uh, my um, research boss, the guy who was in, employing me, my tutor or uh, uh, in the department. So they were working for him. And he said, look, he's here doing, if he needs any, you help him, you know. So they were always asking me. Uh, if I could do anything for them, if they could do anything for me, and um, uh, but it, it it ended up being put on the sidelines because there was a very interesting time in Sweden with the um, the draft dodgers from America from Vietnam War were given sanctuary there, so there were a lot of Americans there, a lot of creative Americans, and they were hanging around, not doing anything. Did that band the Monks end up in Sweden? The Monks, that rings a bell. They were like those 60s GIs, and they all cut their hair like monk bowl haircuts, and they were of a similar situation. I'm sure it was Scandinavia they based themselves in. They were like a 60s garage rock and roll band. Well, this was, I'm talking about the early 70s. Okay. It should have been a bit later. 
So there was this, um, there was this, um, where at this university town I was studying, there was this atmosphere of, you know, Bohemia. Uh, Bohemia and um, a lot of nomads wandering around, uh, a lot of creative nomads. And, um, and so we, I ended up getting involved in a band from, um, with a couple of Americans and a couple of Swedes um, called Johnny Socks. And that's, 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 um, so the, the studying sort of got put on the sidelines, really. And my boss was so cool. He was, um, he didn't, he didn't really keep, he, he, he was happy, whatever I did, you know, we got on really well and he was, he was quite a bon viveur himself. Right, right. <laughs> he used to come to my gigs, at, he, not my gigs, he, did he come to a couple of gigs, other gigs that I played? But he, I did, he did actually come to see Frank Zappa with me um, at a gig in Copenhagen and we were involved in a car accident way back to the terrible snow. Um, that's a stay in Copenhagen the night um, but he so he was a cool guy my boss used to you know you go to going to gigs with your boss. especially Frank Zappa gigs yeah yeah that's pretty hip so of that time period did you see any other of those you know pioneers mavericks iconic acts like that live and did um, any of them have like a formative up, impression on you we had Bill Haley came to incredible to do a gig. We had Dexter Gordon, these jazz saxophonists. We had then I went to um, a lot of gigs were in Copenhagen, so European tours always went to Copenhagen. So I, I went to see the Grateful Dead. Wow. Um, I saw Frank Zappa. Um, the Fluorescent Leech and Eddie came to uh, Lund, the town where I was studying, in a theatre. I remember going to see them. Um, there was quite a few. Uh, First ones I can remember. There's probably a few more. I used to go to Copenhagen regularly to see to see bands playing. And what took you back to the UK? Sorry. Did you just finish the course and decide I'm not staying? It's time to go home. Um, no, I didn't. I didn't end up finishing the course because because a PhD it's not really lectures. It's it's you private you research, a, right? Yeah, a research project which you're funded to do uh, and um, until you finish it and. Uh, but the project that I chose was something that um, was very, very difficult to, to try and come to uh, fruition. Um, it was a pet subject of the professor there uh, to do with schizophrenia, and um, and it meant going to a slaughterhouse every few weeks and picking up uh, cattle's livers and then bringing them back and trying to find do tests with them, with it to try and trace the uh, existence of a certain enzyme but it, it was a big process every experiment took three or four weeks to do uh, before you knew the outcome and I couldn't get it working and uh, I sort of lost lost my uh, lack of self faith you know in w whether I could do it or not and I started playing more and more music with these guys so um, it ended up um, being left to my own devices, I ended up letting the research slip, um, and um, I was involved in a couple of projects with other people to try and get on track, which were a success. But mine still wasn't getting anywhere, and um, I went to see if the guy who was funding me. Not this isn't my cool boss, but the funder guy who was funding it and the uh, professor, and uh, I sort of said I wasn't really going to continue. Um, 
so he accepted that and we parted on the best of terms you know and so uh, and that that's when i that's when we did go with when we decided to, to come to england it was either go to america the americans wanted to go back to america because they'd just been given the amnesty by uh, so it's safe to return oh, what's his name the peanut <laughs> um, the uh, the uh, president carter right president carter gave them the amnesty i think so they wanted to go back to America, but I I knew that it was going to be tougher in America than it was going to be in the UK um, because it's bigger and it's it's just harder. So um, we 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 opted to to try to do it in the UK. So we the band all came to the UK. And is that the band that then, through various changes, would become the Stranglers? Was it? The Stranglers, yeah, yeah, yeah. We used to play in gigs. It was the pub scene was uh, strong men in London and... Uh, Dr. Feelgood and all of that. Yeah, and a band called The Winkies. Right. And um, I got very uh, got on very well with their manager who was in charge of the Truman's Brewery Entertainment chain. And so uh, I got a good source of gigs through him. Um, uh, and so we started playing on that circuit. But our... our um, our lead singer, because I was on lead, lead singer at the time, our lead singer was um, was uh, capable of um, getting into uh, very difficult situations with pub landlords, <laughs> too much to drink or smoke, and he'd end up, you know, in uh, brawling with the guys that were employing us, and so that was a disaster. So we we lost that, and then the band slowly transformed into the Stranglers. Did you all come from quite? Diverse musical backgrounds. That original lineup. That original lineup. Because there was quite a unique quality that the Stranglers always had, wasn't there? Which marked you guys out from a lot of what was going on at that time. The uh, the lead guitarist uh, was a a relic from one of the last lineups of the Spotniks in Sweden, and he'd been on tour with them a few times, um, playing those hits. You know, so uh, that was amazing and. He was a very good guitarist called Hans Werning, uh, and he could play keyboards, and he could play saxophone, and he could sing. He was a real talented guy, and he could write. And I learned a lot from him, uh, just hanging out with him. And uh, so he he was a male nurse, his profession. <clears throat> and uh, the dr- the drummer was from Chicago, and he was a Vietnam draft dodger. Uh, I don't know what his background was. He wasn't from a, a well-to-do family or anything. I'm a pretty working-class guy from the wrong side of Chicago. Nice guy. And then uh, Mike. And there was a, a singer who was a, a poet, a real um, uh, traveller, traveler, itinerant poet uh, called Gerf, uh, who uh, rode freight trains across America for years and was a real bum. <laughs> he was a real sort of Kerouac, Jack Kerouac-style bum. Yeah, yeah. Um, writer. And so um, I had that influence for writing as well, you know. When you're around these people, you absorb things from them. And um, at the time, I wasn't a writer. And so I could see him writing down his lyrics. You know, he had, he had hundreds of pages, hundreds of poems. He said, I've got all these poems. We can turn them all into songs. And Hans had tapes of hundreds of songs. He said, well, I've got all these hundreds. I said, well, you two should be writing together. So, I, you know, they started writing together. They didn't get on very well. And I wrote a few little things. Um, 
with them too uh, and by myself. But I was learning, it was the learning curve, you know. And the, uh, who else was there? And the fifth member, so I was second guitarist, and the fifth member was um, uh, my flatmate, who was a Swedish guy uh, whose parents had a, nurse, a plant nursery, and he was uh, had a various jobs. I can't remember what his job was at the time. And um, he could play uh, guitar, and so I got him playing bass. So um, I, I guess I put the band together in Sweden, yeah, from people I knew, um, from my mates and people I came across. So it's safe to say when the the rumbles of punk first started bubbling yeah. away, you'd already been at it a little while. You'd hone your chops a bit. That's that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you identify with the punk scene? Were you a fan of, say, bands like the Pistols or the Clash or the Buzzcocks? Um. Well. Because um, there's always been that strange kind of relationship, hasn't there, between yes. the Stranglers and the punk well, scene? We were right? a, bit, a few years older. Yeah. Than I guess could probably play a little bit better than a lot of the bands as well at that time. But we were falling in between two stalls because <clears throat> saying that we were a bit younger and not as pro- uh, as proficient players, as good players, as the pub rock scene. Yeah. So they they snubbed us and the punk lot snubbed us. So we ended up being snubbed by everybody. <laughs> falling between um, the cracks of the two... Uh, sorry? Falling between the cracks yeah, of the two yeah, yeah, exactly. scenes, as it but were. Associated with uh, probably because of our attitude and uh, you know we we got a lot of aggression from audiences uh, when we first started because we were playing our own songs mixed in with uh, standards and the people reacted violently to our songs you know we'd play Peaches and they'd react violently to it and um, go buddy go and stuff and um, we go why are they reacting like this <laughs> these are they're just songs you know. Um, and so as a result we we mirrored their reaction so our songs got more aggressive because we had to to get ex- to sort of match the aggression we were getting from the audience so we ended up becoming a hard-nosed um, outfit that we became I think lyrically as well you guys were always pretty out there weren't you and weren't afraid to address um, hot subjects in a kind of confrontational way yeah, well, so, just, um, uh, I've always written about things that I'm interested. You know, when the thing is that the 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 the, the duty of a, of a creative person is to try and reflect in their work what's happening around them. Yeah. And if if you can do that, you're fulfilling the job as an artist. I think, uh, creative person. And all we would, all of it, all I was doing with the lyric, lyrically was was reflecting what I saw, what was around, you know. And that's all you, and you can't, you can only do it honestly. If you're not doing it honestly, then you'll be a dishonest writer. So I was, I was being honest um, uh, in what I wrote about, and so, um, and that, that's it. Do you feel like some of the lyrics were misunderstood at the time? Oh, of course, bound to be, yeah, and. And there was an element of, let's see what I can get away with as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a bit of going on as well. Um, but that's, that's to be expected, I think. You, you want to know what your boundaries are. Yeah. Um, those first three albums, am I right in thinking they were recorded within and released within the space of like a yeah, year and a half? Time. Yeah, yeah, very 18 months, I think, yeah. That's amazing. All with the same producer as well, right? Yes, that's correct, yeah. 
most of the stuff on the second album, No More Heroes, we had at the same time at the first album. So the first album was select the songs on the first album were selected from a from about we had about twenty songs that we recorded the first sessions and then the first album was put together in the selection. So the ones that were left over went on the second album. That's why the second one was so easy to quick to do because we had most of we only Because you were shitting out gold. We we had to come up with about three or four more songs and then we had the second album really, you know. My introduction to The Stranglers was uh, I was 13 years old and I had quite an eccentric history teacher and he'd go into his store cupboard and he'd drink, he'd, he'd drink some whiskey and then he'd come out because he was you know, big into obviously Trotsky and wow. Russian history and he would always quote No More Heroes like wow. with spit flying out of his mouth, his ruler yeah. in his hand and I was like, I've got to check this band out and heard well, I it. And- very, I was an avid reader at the time. I mean, John wasn't really into fiction. John used to read John Jack. He used to read uh, documentary books, which is what my father used to do. He used to, didn't like fiction at all. He wasn't really... A, I never used to see him with a fictional, a fictional work in his reading. He was always reading documentary stuff, or history books, stuff like this. But I was into fiction and, um, and also uh, documentary stuff and history as well. So, um, I mean, a lot of uh, what I was reading got reflected in the lyrics and um i just read a, read a book about i just read a book about trotsky yeah you know fascinating and the white the white revolution you know the guard the, the revolution of the white what was it the revolution of the white palace yeah yeah um a bloody so, revolution yeah 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 so um so that got put in a song you know um reader. early on i guess you were getting an itch to try new things outside of the band. And obviously in 1979, you did the album with Robert Williams. Was yes. it Nosferatu? Yes. Um, yeah. Were you a big fan of that film? Uh, film, yeah, I loved it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what about the Herzog remake? What's your take on that one? That was very good as well. I mean, uh, he, he, uh, it was good in its own way. Yeah. Klaus Kinski as well. What a powerhouse of a performer! Yeah, he did a good job of remaking it. And uh, Kinski's great in whatever you see him in. He's a, a big screen presence. Yeah. Um, <coughs> so was that a fun project to do at that time? And you obviously had loads of great guests on the album as well. A couple of the guys yes. from Devo. Well, and part of that was down to um, I, I got the guests here, and uh, part of that was down to Robert's connections there. Um, he, uh, we both knew Devo. Uh, guy, the Devo guys. Is it the Rhythmic Itch track? That's yeah. with them, yeah? Yeah. That uh, sounds so Devo-esque, doesn't it? Yes, so he, uh, that was co-written, I was, the music, I gave him the music, and he said, well, let's get, um, let's get the Devo boys on this, and uh, it's a great idea, so, uh, so I was back here when that was done, uh, when it, that was put together, uh, but I was very happy with how that turned out, and I got the injury here, and we got the, the uh, on puppets, there's some, uh, uh, a couple of the Clasher or singing backing vocals on that. Uh, they were in the same studio as us, so that was easy to get them involved. Uh, was he in Jury on one of the songs? Yeah, he's on. Um, he's on uh, Wrong Way Round. Yeah, he came in and did the circus uh, Barker. What was he like? Ladies and gents, roll up, roll up. <laughs> he was great. a character. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. Um, great that he came in and did it, and. Um, and then uh, 
Ian Underwood, who who Robert ran into and got got him to be involved on. I think he played on a couple of tracks. Um, I can't remember who else was on it. There's a lot of people on that, wasn't there? Yeah. It, it sounded. I mean, I've only heard it in you know years since. But looking back at it at the time, I guess it was quite in line with the the post punk, what's now called post punk stuff that was happening. Yeah, I guess so. Wire and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. <coughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I've been a big fan of Beefheart, and so it was a sort of a, my 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 uh, exp- my exploration into Beefheart territory. And of course, having Robert on board was um, was good because um, he comes straight from that world, you know. So he knew what I was talking about. Once you put your, you know, your foot outside of the Stranglers and do that album, is it then frustrating to go back? No, I went no? back with um, I went renewed back with, vigor, with, with new ideas. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's see if I can work that in, you know, and those ideas and stuff. So a lot of uh, a lot of stuff that I, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of stuff that I um, discovered doing that I, I was I tried to bring back and I think that um, on black and white there's a few few strange things going on in there yeah, yeah. musically which uh, which uh, which um, which came in through because of um, because of what had happened on um, uh, had Heroes come out when I did that I can't remember I guess my thinking was that the first two albums had definitely come out Yes, and then and then that, and then black and white. Yeah, there was some. So I was starting to experiment with the guitar playing because there was a lot of uh, rhythm playing with sheet chords going on in the first two albums, and um, I suddenly realised doing this Nosferatu that you could make, you could create, uh, you could create big sounds, big sounds, not necessarily playing chords, but with single notes or with two notes. Uh, sort of, what do you call them? Triads, or uh, through three notes is a triad. So you don't need full chords, and sort of it's a bit like what Wilco Johnson was doing as well. He was playing this a minimalist triad, repetition, minimalist yeah. uh, uh, rhythm guitar. Uh, so it was, it's, we were sort of doing the same thing, but in the tumbling away in, into the unknown from different angles, you know, and. Um, and although you see a lot of beef hearts, uh, guitar parts on beef heart songs are like that. They're not some um, sheet rhythm uh, pieces. They're they're uh, fragmented, and um, and I was realizing that you can you can do a lot. You can do just as much with that uh, as you can with sheet chords. Um, you've got to be a bit more careful how you're playing it. So you've got to be a bit more uh, capable. And at the time, I, I was learning how to do that. I can do it quite well now. Um, but then I was only learning to do it. Because I, I could do the sheet chords, but the, the single note stuff, or this other type of playing, was something... That's why I loved Wilco's playing so much, because he could do both, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and as time has gone on, I've realised, you know, you realise you can... There's more to a rhythm guitar playing than just playing sheet chords. You know, you can mix and match. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When did you start to lose interest in the band and feel like you were done with writing music in that group? Um well, it was about in mid-80s, we were, um, John was throwing his weight around a bit more, which I was a bit uh, unhappy with because he, he wasn't really portraying the band in, in the correct way, I didn't think. Um, and you, he was unstoppable um, physically. So, um, so that, I found that a bit uh, depressing and daunting. And... Um, and we were meet, and then everybody got into relationships. Um, uh, three of the band got married. I didn't, um, uh, and so they were. They had. To, they started having families and, and creating these groups outside of the band. So we were ended up. We were just meeting to to do work, and there was no. And we all go off to do our lives afterwards, and. You, you had no real contact with it, and um, and it felt like we were becoming, uh, we were being split split up, but not by anything that you could do anything about. Yeah, just life. life. Yeah, that's what happens. And then suddenly it was it had lost its thrill, you know. Yeah, like that, and um, and and uh, as time went on, I I got less and less uh, excited by the uh, the gigs we were doing, and. Um, and then the last album we made, which was called Ten, which was made specifically for the Amer- to break into the American market with some new uh, new management setup, and we couldn't even get it anyone interested in releasing it in America. And I thought, well, I can't believe it. There are some great songs on this, and um, nobody's nobody's going to release it. And I thought, well, I think that's about it now. I looked at my watch and thought, well, I'm off. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very funny because the it's very odd how that was received by the rest of the band because they took it as a real disloyalty rather than okay well fair enough everything's got a beginning and an end and uh, and ever since they've never really forgiven me for it and um, although they've got a new uh, reincarnation now um, 
it's not really anything to do with the one that created all these great songs and um and it's it's a shame that I, I don't I don't get any positive or encouraging feedback from that that part of uh, my my past at all, which is I find a bit sad. Um, you mean from the guys or from the yeah, fan base or? And a bit from the fan base as well. They they it's funny. It's um uh it's it's just really odd <laughs> and. Um, Encouragement would be good. I've had no encouragement whatsoever. It's it's uh, from that side, which is surprising. If you think that people would wish people well, you know. And, um, Do you feel like that's because the narrative's been twisted and people think you just walked out on it and yeah, I think almost betrayed it? Yeah, the truth hasn't been told properly. That's it. I mean, people always the truth looks different from wherever you're standing, right? Of course, yeah. Um, but there are limits. <laughs> um, so. Um, but that's okay, you know. I think that um, uh, um, that sort of attitude uh, belies a certain insecurity. I think if you're behaving like that, then it, it shows insecurity. And uh, for some reason, they feel insecure. Um, and I don't know why they can't. Um, I wish them all the best. And, you know, I wish they could wish me all the best. Have you tried to reach out to them? Have they reached out to you? Has there been any? Well, whenever that's happened, it gets misinter, it gets misreported. So I gave up. You know, I gave up a long time ago. Um, I don't like uh, propaganda machines turning around the facts to to suit certain individuals. You know, so I I don't play that game. So I'd rather not get involved. It's a shame. And would you would you go back and play with them again if the oh, the circumstances over my dead body. the doors closed? Is it? <laughs> Shut a long time. Ago. <laughs> okay, let's talk about the record you did with John. Um, tell me about that friendship, where it started, and I guess the idea was to revisit songs of both of your youth, yeah, and I mean, interpret it in your own way. Funnily enough, I've I've been running into uh, John. What a character that guy is as well. I love him. I've been running into John over the years for a long time now, festivals and things, but I didn't really know him. And um, and then just by chance, we had him. I got a very long-standing friend who became friendly with him, and he told me about it. And he said, "Oh, we must get you two together because you you you're a great fan. He's a great fan of yours, and and you get on great." So we we he put us together. You know, we had dinner at his house, and we got on a you know, house on fire. And then you know, I just kept in touch with John. We went to his gigs. He came to mine, and um, and then uh, I uh, drunk. I was drunk one night and listening to stuff from YouTube, and I was playing MacArthur Park to somebody who didn't know what it was, and I suddenly got this idea that um, it should be covered again. Um, so it hadn't been done for a long time. I think the last version was Donna Summer in mid 80s so um so i, I made that a, uh, and i thought well i could sing it but, but and he was in my head at the time and i thought wouldn't it be it would be surreal to get john cooper clark doing MacArthur park with his in because it's a sort of spoken lyric and and his spoken voice on it would that would make a very surreal package yeah so I rang him up and asked him if he'd be interested, and he said, that's a great idea, yeah, let's do it, let's do it. 
So I said, okay, will you study the lyrics, you know, and I'll get the track together. So it took about six months to get the track together. It's such a work of art. Um, and then he came in to, uh, to, do the, to record the vocal, and he started singing it, which I wasn't expecting at all. And uh, it was good what he did. Um, so um, so he, ended, he ended up singing it. We had to take out his teeth clicking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I interviewed him years ago for radio, and yeah, the whole way through, you can just hear like all that motion going on inside. <laughs> and um, so we did that. Uh, we played it to Sony's record company, and they loved it. But they said, but one track isn't, isn't really any. We, we want to do something with this. We've got to have an album. So... So I, I then said to John, well, look, forget something, he loved it. Uh, so to get this going, we've got to do more, we've got to do some more songs and make an album. He said, all right, then, uh, yeah. And I said, you up for that? He said, yeah, sure. So I picked some songs and I sent them to him. I said, do you fancy doing those? He goes, oh, I love these songs. These are songs I grew up with. And I said, well, so did I. So that's great. So uh, we had mutual, um, mutual um, happiness uh, over that, those choices. And that's how the album got made. Yeah. I think he's a guy you can talk to all day about old movies and music, isn't he? He's an encyclopedia on... encyclopedia of, of... He should go on Mastermind. He could do it to do with film and he could do it with... Um, I don't know how he could manage to do it. He could do it with modern music as well. We'll know the B-side of, you know, Del Shannon's first single release. He'll yeah. know what the B-side was and he'll probably be able to sing it to you. And he'll tell you the name of... Richard Conti's first movie that he made. Yeah, yeah. And, and who was in it? He's like the B movie king, isn't he? <laughs> what the, the sales, what the, uh, the first weekend gross turnover was. <laughs> Johnny, remember me, and she's a woman. They're my two favourites on the album. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic renditions. And the first song on the record, it took me about maybe. The first song on the record. Oh, um, only make believe. Yeah. Conway Twitty. It took me about half the song to settle into it because I, I think maybe as you were expecting to hear John talk the lyrics yeah. and because his voice is so distinct, I'm, I'm a bit jarred by him singing. Yeah. But then once you settle in, you're like, oh, actually, this is, this is really interesting. Yeah, he's got a great singing voice. Why he's a crooner, sing? isn't he? You know, yeah, he's a crooner, definitely. Um, talking movies as well, I want to talk to you about Eat the Rich, which, okay, which yeah. you were involved in in, in yeah. 87. Um, and the the cast of amazing comic and acting talent in that, and musical talent. Yeah, Paul McCartney, the, uh, Lemmy. What did they call that group of them together? Called? What was it called? It was the comedy something, wasn't it? Oh, but called? it was French and Saunders, Rick Mayle, Aid Edmund, the comic strip. Comic strip, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and uh, uh, Keith Allen. Yeah, what's his and, name? Roll on Rivron. And, um, and uh, what's his name? Nigel Plainer, who I got very became very friendly with, in fact, I made a record with Nigel. He was he needed a song for a TV series he was doing, um, the the um, theme tune. So uh, so I put together a song for him, and then he 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 was on that. Yeah, he sang that. I think. Yeah, yeah Nigel Plainer and Aid Edmondson. Yeah, Robbie Coltrane's in there. Kathy Burke. It's amazing collection of people, wasn't it? Was it a good experience for you? Great. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. They were a good bunch of people to work with. Yeah, they they were nice. They always. I was in a few of their films. They because of my connection with Nigel, and I was always hanging out with them in the West End. So uh, 
So whenever they had something coming up, they'd ring me up and say, do you, uh, do you want to do a little walk-on parts? And I said, yeah, sure, put me in. I'm there. Okay, the new record, let's get to that. Um, what was the initial seed and where did the initial idea for this... Would you, would you yourself call it a concept album? Or is that a term you'd rather shy away from? I don't know. I, I just call it an album. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's your job to call it what you want to call it. Um, but there's a thematical thread which runs is, throughout, right? Yeah, that's true. So it's thematic. It's thematic. That's the word, I think. Thematic. Well, it started off with there's a song about my mother. Um, my mother passed away about five years ago. She's, it's all her fault. Right. She ha- happened to end up uh, passing away about five years ago, and I wanted to remember and create something to, you know, it's, it was my bunch of flowers at her funeral, uh, although it was written after the funeral. It was my contribution uh, to the, um, the, the, the epitaph. Epitaph, is that right? Yeah, epitaph. The epi, her epitaph. Uh, was this song, and I wanted to write a song about her, and La Grande Dame came into our minds a great title, because um, she had French affiliations, um, and she was half French, uh, meaning uncalled a French. And um, so uh, I wrote this song about her, and uh, after I'd written I was very pleased with it, and um, and I thought, well, this is the start of something now. And I thought, 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 and thought, and thought. And then I realised there were a few other people who weren't around that I'd like that that had never had songs written. And I think the first one I found was Evil Knievel. Uh, and I thought, my God, here's this guy who is the, the most famous man in the world in the mid seventies, one of the richest as well, and no one's written a song about him. I can't believe this. Is that true? That's crazy. Yeah, that blows my mind. I think so. I don't think there's a other song about him. Wow. So I thought, I'm going to write a song about him. I wondered how you go from, say, Mugabe to Evil Knievel, but was that the criteria was if they haven't yet had yeah. a tribute, I'm going to pay one right. to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, and the, the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. And then I got the pure evil. Then that came together. And I thought, who else is there, you know? And, and I was a big fan of... Um, I'd just seen a, a program about Ray Harryhausen, the, uh, the guy that did all these special effects in films before CGI, computer animation. And um, I thought, well, he's a fascinating guy. He's a great guy too. And then, and then when I was thinking about that, then I met this American comedian called Bobby Slayton who has got a shrine to him in his house in L.A., uh, friend of a friend. And I, pl- I had this song Monster, and I played it to Bobby, and he said, I can't believe you've written a song about Ray Harryhausen. I said, what do you mean? He said, i got a shrine to him in my house. You know, so that made sense. And, um, uh, you know, it all sort of made sense. And he was responsible, that guy, for some of those early, early, huge blockbuster epics, wasn't he? Like Clash of the Titans and the films that you would watch on a Sunday afternoon growing up. Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. You know? And Mussolini. Good old, good old Duce, you know. Well that, <laughs> I mean, that came about. I'm fascinated by Mussolini. I think he's a fascinating man. He wasn't all bad. Um, and I thought, well, this is an opportunity to try and educate people about him and see that he wasn't as bad as everyone thinks he was. Um, and he had some good points. 
And um, and then I came up with the title Ducci Coochie Man. I thought, what a great title! It's got to be a song about him, you know, because that's a, that's too good a title to use. <laughs> so that swayed me about having a song about um, Benito. And um, yeah, so um, there's a couple more I'd like to ask you about Mugabe as well. Yeah. What was the the draw there with a figure like that with for you? Mugabe, well, I mean, I'd, with all the I mean, he's Zimbabwe, right? Well, I'm a big cricket fan. And Zimbabwe withdrew from the, the international cricket scene for a while. And that made me curious. So you start getting interested in, Zim, in Zimbabwe um, cricket-wise, and then you start finding out about the place, and then you start checking out the history. And then you find out that Magal was actually a revolutionary character that was had nothing but positive things about his country when he start when he began uh, isn't this a great is have we haven't we heard this before <laughs> you know so he's a classic example of this and um and although um he would say he's a tyrant and all this he's 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 he started out with the, the right things in his heart you know and so it's just a, 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 a um just a, an overview on his on where did it all go wrong you know so, and what would be your stipulation do you well, think power corrupted as it often does what do you think was the the wrong stepping with him well the, the, the thing is in Africa I've heard I've, I've heard from African experts that Africa is a completely different ball game to anywhere else in the world because um, people in Africa who became become powerful they have the right in their heart, they want to look after their people, but their people in Africa means members of your tribe, which isn't necessarily the whole population. So they think they're doing the right thing, and they look after all the people in their tribe, but that's not the whole population. So it's it's a sort of a weird take on it's democracy, and but a weird take on it. So I can understand how it it ends up getting messed up and this is a and what's Zimbabwe is a typical example of what happens in Africa and this is a something that just happens in Africa so I hear from African experts people can shoot me down and say I'm wrong but this is what I've heard until I'm contradicted um, that, that people in power in Africa they look after their own family and that's their tribe and everyone else they don't give a shit about I think there's certain countries, like Russia is a key one as well, that are right. completely ungovernable by our Western standards. Yeah. And I think we try and apply our template to these other places exactly. that we have little understanding about. Yeah. And so it's, it's not necessarily right or wrong, it's just different, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And that's why it's another reason that every time you make an album, it's a voyage of education and discovery for me, because... I, you know, you discover things like this, the fact that we have this democratic template in the West that doesn't sometimes doesn't fit tradition with the traditions of the places and you can't make it work because yeah. it just won't it doesn't go together you know well you look at the conflict in the middle east and places like that and that's the same case isn't it i think is trying to take our framework and yeah yeah so there you go that's it. so a song about robert mugabe suddenly ends up becoming a, a universal thing doesn't it Remarkable. Why shouldn't there be a song about it? Yeah. Do you have to be a, a saint to have something, you know, do you have to, is everything to be written just about good things? 
you know, can't we write? So it doesn't mean that you're uh, you're applauding them, but you're to recognise something um, can lead to education. I think as well because you're looking at heroes and villains and people who are a mixture of those two things. That's essentially the idea of mankind, isn't it? As well as good and evil and exactly. the struggle and the battle within. Is that something that's always interested you as, a, yeah, as an artist and a songwriter, the yeah. duplicity of yeah, humans? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Because, you know, that's my scientific side, you know, uh, in, uh, scientific in, uh, um, event coming in, discussion, you know, and, and, and getting... Because they say in science that um, if you want to prove something, you've got to try and disprove it. And if you can't disprove it, it must be right. And that, that, that's a very old uh, scientific um, maxim that, that researchers are told, are told to try and follow. That rather than try and prove something, try and prove it's wrong. And then by default, if you can't prove it wrong, it must be right. The philosophy of science. Yeah. Love it. Um, Lou Reed is the final character I want to talk to you about. Yeah. A songwriting giant, um, one of my all-time favourite artists. Is he someone who has been an influence on your... Oh. Music, yeah, 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 yeah. From from the word go. I mean, since I first thing I heard by the Velvet Underground, I was hooked, you know, completely. Do you remember the first song you heard? Yeah, I think it was something from the Banana album. Yeah, know, yeah. The first one. Um, I don't think I've ever heard it called that, but it should be called that, shouldn't it? Because that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. song i mean it's slowed down it's sped up and slowed down i mean you can't uh, rock kind of rock song do that well it does and he's done he did it you know to so, replicate uh, the the highs and the lows of yeah, that drug beautiful artistic statement you know um so he was always uh he's always been around in my uh in my inspiration uh world world of inspiration yeah and unfortunately uh, as the song, as my song uh, uh, says, uh, you know, we had a meeting planned up, and uh, it was all it was all messed up by a, a snowstorm, a blizzard, and uh, flu. We both got flu at the same time, and a, a big snow, biggest blizzard they've ever had in New York. And um, I never got to meet him. Final question, Hugh. You probably get asked this all the time. Um, on the subject of heroin, what yes. what's Golden Brown really about? Well, Golden Brown was written about uh, uh, my experiences with heroin, but also it, uh, I try and write lyrics that, that relate to more than one thing at a time, and um, at the same time, sort of a, like a subtext. And I was uh, having an affair with a, a, a French girl who had lovely golden brown uh, tan, and. Um, so it was it was at that time so it was about her as well you know so it is about both it's a love song yeah, yeah. In, on one level yeah thanks so much for your time mate no, I enjoyed talking um, the album's out in October you're going on a big old tour in November as well all across the UK if people want to find out more about the dates and get tickets etc where do they go they go to hughcornwall.com there you go nice and easy does it nice, nice and sleazy does it does it every time <laughs> Shake my hand. Thanks for a good chat. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers.
you like sun Lays me down with my mind She runs throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown with golden brown Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.